0: Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know. and We'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Good to be back with you. I uh, hope you had a great summer. And I hope you're ready for the fall and all that we have in store Because we have a lot in store for you. We're starting a series today that we've been working on for quite a while. Our whole staff has been orienting themselves personally and together around it. And it's called Go Local. And uh, it's about bringing Jesus to others in our everyday, ordinary life. Uh, It sounds like the kind of thing you would hear in church, the typical thing that you would hear when you came to church, but here's the truth. It's rarely being done, and maybe rarer still, being done well. So, we want to spend some time dealing with it. Now, this series is fraught with what I have sort of pictured in my head, sort of mud patches. And you can get stuck in them, and it's possible that just announcing the theme for the fall, you're feeling, you're feeling it already. Uh, this is what will make you feel stuck in this. Uh, maybe you feel stuck because you think, I, I don't even know how to share Jesus with anyone. So I'm stuck. Or you might say, uh, I, I don't have the personality for it. Nah, not me. You would see I'm eliminating all the people that this series is for, okay? I'm eliminating all of you right here. There'll be three of you that'll need to listen, okay? Uh, I don't know how to defend the faith. And it just seems like everywhere you turn, you've got to be able to defend it today. So I'm out. And then there's the, uh, well, there's the fear of losing maybe a battle. There's the fear of looking foolish. Perhaps you feel like, I don't speak the language of today. It's a language of a new world, and I don't get it and have no interest in it, and so you're stuck. And then there's uh, anger. There's a lot of anger floating around. There's social, cultural, political issues uh, flying around, and people are mad everywhere you turn, and maybe you're angry at culture. And you've sort of given up on it. Uh, or maybe you've just mainly become judgmental. Uh, sin doesn't only feel wrong to you, it's icky. And you don't want to be near it, you don't want to touch it. And you don't like people who are near it and touch it. That kind of thing. Uh, maybe. Um, you don't want that awkward moment God forbid some conversation starts something happens and you get in that awkward moment where some spiritual bridge has to get crossed and you're like I don't want that awkward moment Um, so you could see there's lots of places to get stuck in this series, and to check out. So we got to figure out how to help each other out of the mud. That's what the series is about. How are we going to help each other out of this mud? Uh, how, how are we going to help each other out? Uh, how do we move forward once we get out? Because getting out's not the only problem. So you might say, yeah, okay, I've decided. I'm ready for the awkward moment. You might get that far. We pulled you out of the mud. You go, all right. Bring on the awkwardness. But then you go, how? What does that look like? Kind of a thing. So we need to ask that. And then we need to ask the question of why. I mean, why should we? Why, why can't we just stay stuck in the mud? And so we need, we need to answer that question too. Uh, so I hope to do that in this series. And I want to just say, as of about six months ago, half a year ago, I, you know, started to wrap my mind around this Uh, theme uh, for me personally, and it changed a lot of my uh, daily habits, And, and I realized that I was stuck. I had gotten stuck along the way in a couple of those places that even the summer studying really revealed them to me. And so in dealing with it, uh, I've come to learn a few things that I want to share with you in this series to help you get out of it, in case you're stuck in it. Um, And and I'm going to just say two things at the beginning that will prepare you for the series. The first one is, this is not going to be a study. I know we all like to study. We, we, We love to take notes. We love to learn Uh, my first thought was, hey, I left here thinking in the summer, I would just study the book of Acts, and we would learn the book of Acts, and we would sit in here for, you know, 10 or 12 years going through the book of Acts, 28 chapters. And, you know, you would have a lot of notes that you had taken. There would be jokes flying around about how long we've been in the series. All that kind of stuff would happen, but none of us would probably be any more effective at actually doing evangelism, and actually caring and, and sharing Christ than we were when we started. And I said, we're not doing that. Not going to do that. Um, so, you're going to have to wrap your mind around a different kind of series. Okay? You're going to have to do that. It's going to be practical to the best of my ability. We want to help each other be better at this. The second thing is it's really going to hurt. You're, you're going to feel bad. You know, when you go to church, there's a part of you that wants to feel bad because feeling bad is sort of a spiritual thing. And when you feel bad a little, it helps you feel more spiritual. I know that. But I don't want you to feel bad and just leave your bad there. And I'm not a guilt guy. I don't like crushing people over the head. It's not my thing. Uh, the, only, the only pain I want you to feel is pain that I feel. Misery loves company. I'm inviting you in. All right? I'm inviting you into the misery. I'm going to walk you through my convictions and pain. And this talk is basically grows out of my own conviction and pain in this process. All right? Um, so you're, it's going to hurt a little bit. It's going to hurt because uh, you're going to have to look deep and honest. At your, uh, it'll start today in your spiritual life. It's going to require some new habits. It's going to require a different focus. Um, and I'm going to get into all that throughout the series. Today, I'm just getting, getting it started for us. Because I've been in this six months. Today, you know, you come in, with your, your, you know, you got your coffee, and it's, you know, it's not hot out, and you're, you're happy, and I know, and this is going to ruin your day. I know it's going to ruin your day. Just hearing the title of the series, you're like, oh, this is going to kill me. But I want you to think to yourself, uh, or it's possible that you're sitting here, eh, I don't really need this. It's possible. So let me put it to you this way. If this is you, if you would say, I believe with all of my heart, Jesus is the way. But I never tell anyone that, and I have no real or definite intentions to do so. This series is for you. Is that you? You might even go so far as to say, I can't imagine life without him. But I never tell anyone. And I have no real or definite intentions of doing so. Then this series is for you. That's what this series is about. Uh, and I'm asking the first question, the first question that I'm gonna get at here with us while we're all sort of stuck in mud and feeling bad and dirty uh, what kind of a spiritual life does that leave us if it's not one to speak of, literally speak of? This summer, we couldn't wait you know, for Mission Impossible to come out, the, the, you know, the new movie. How many of you have not seen Mission Impossible yet? You haven't seen it. Hands go up. Okay, you're, you're starting off spiritually behind, and I'm going to have to catch you up. It's going to be really hard. Wow. Okay. So I'm not going to give the movie away. I mean, it's hard to give it away. There's an impossible mission, and it gets, it gets done. All right? But I'm not going to give it away. I simply want to alert you to the trailer, which grabbed my attention right away. Uh, I'm not going to show you the whole thing. It's just one little piece, and I want you to just watch this and see uh, what it says. Your mission. Should you choose to accept it? I wonder, did you ever choose not to? Just stop right there. Now, if you've, how many of you have already seen the trailer? I mean, you've seen the trailer before, right? It goes all the way through. This evil character has this great voice, and he's so sinister. He just really draws you into this evil and this overwhelming, sort of sinister uh, deal going on. And, and, but I had never, ever asked the question that this guy asks of Ethan Have you ever chosen not to take the mission? That thought has never hit me. When I grew up, I watched Mission Impossible on TV. How many of you did that? You did? That's the old folks in the room. Just look around, they're the old folks in the room. <laughs> they used to watch Mission Impossible on TV everywhere. I never saw them not take a mission. So when he asked that question, I was like, what is he thinking when he asks that? And then my mind started to say, what would the movie look like if they didn't take the mission? I mean, and right there in that little puff of smoke. I'm done. I'm out. And then I started teasing it out even more. That's how much it gripped me. Was if they went ahead and played the movie, what do you got? You got a. Uh, you're going to see. Wow, we're going to see a couple of guys and gals get together, and they're going to form this really great team. And so they got this really great team, and you're going to see their interaction. And then you're going to see all the cool gadgets that they've created. Uh, to, you know, to 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 do impossible missions. They're going to be cool. And then, um, you know. What do you have after that? you got great training. These guys are gifted. They they have all kinds of abilities. And you're just going to be enamored with it. That if they ever did a mission, they'd be great at it. That's what you'd have. Now think about all of us who have been given a crystal clear mission from our Savior. The one we say that we love with all our hearts, sing about every single week. What kind of spiritual, what are we if we're not about that mission? I think it's a great question. and It forced me to ask some very hard questions about my spiritual life. If it doesn't have a mission, a mission point to it. So, Reggie McNeil said, Christians are suffering... I just really think he's right, it resonated with me, from severe mission amnesia. They have forgotten, really, what they're here for. And so after listening to that, I go, yeah, and you might be feeling it right now, the, the, the feeling bad is starting to settle in. Hang in there, uh, we've got to get to the other side of that. Um, so I want to look, I want to take two snapshots for you, I just want to take two brief snapshots As a way for you to begin considering the kind of spiritual life you're talking about. If it has no mission to it. No intention. No real intention of sharing Christ with people. Uh, Isaiah 58 is the first one. And Isaiah 58 is important because in the New Testament. Which you and I are very, very much more familiar with probably. Especially in this topic. The image of light where Jesus literally looks at his people and says, you are the light of the world. The background to that light image is Israel. They were always supposed to be a light to the people around them and never, never, ever got around to it. They ended up being what we would call today spiritual punks. They were always in a mess, always self-centered, always veering off track never becoming that light. And on one particular occasion, they're frustrated with God in Isaiah 58 because they're doing a bunch of religious stuff and he's not responding the way they want him to. So let me just start by reading just a couple of verses, then we'll look at them together. He says this. God tells Isaiah, go cry aloud to these people and don't hold back. Lift up up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people where they are wrong. He says this, they seek me daily and they delight to know my ways. Is that you? Seek me daily and delight to know my ways. And then he says, uh, and they delight to draw near to me. Like Isaiah, well, okay, God, I'm telling them all the things they're doing well. And then they say, God says, here's what they're saying to me. You know, we've, we're doing this fasting, God, and you don't seem to see it. We're doing some of these religious activities. You don't seem to see it. We've humbled ourselves, and you don't take knowledge of it. And here's how God responds. Behold, in the day of your fast, fasting, in case you don't know what that is, that's, you know, you You don't eat. It's one time a one time a year they were told they had to fast. They're doing it all the time now because that's what that's what happens when your spirituality gets weird. You start making stuff up. So they're creating fast to look more spiritual to God. So behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You even oppress your, your your workers. You fast only to crawl, fight, hit. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. If you think that that's what I'm up here just loving you're doing, you got it wrong. So you can see uh, their spiritual life's gotten very self-centered. And when it's very self-centered and inward focused, it'll become manipulative. Pretty soon you're just playing a game with God about... Um, You know, I'm doing this, I hope you see it, and I hope you'll bless me. It's sort of American Christianity. Uh, And you go, ah, what is, what, and it it becomes very, very self-serving. And so um, this is what God says. Do you think that's the fast that I would choose for you? Were you just making yourself look humble and you're bowing your head like a reed and you got these sackcloth and ashes and you're laying in them, you know, all sad and everything? Uh, will you call this a fast and a day of acceptance? You think that, I'm gonna, that that's what I'm after? And so here's what God says in, in response to it I'll tell you the fast that I would prefer that you chose. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? That's a mess. When you see the naked, cover them. You see the difference? One has a very, very inward focus. And it becomes just this weird relationship with God that becomes manipulative. And then one has a complete outward focus, much more energy spent, much more of an aggravation to live out, caring about people who are needy, hurt, oppressed, uh, feeding people, clothing people. You want to go without, God says, you want to go without food? Give and share. You want to go without clothes? Not literally, but nice clothes? Share. Now, in case you're wondering, man, does my spiritual life have that sort of weirdness to it? I'm going to tell you, it will take time and self reflection. It won't immediately be obvious to you all the places that your spiritual life has become just that. God, look at me. I hope you move a mountain for me today. I need you to move a mountain. We move, we need mountains moved. We got Monday's mountains gotta be moved. Tuesday, ma- Tuesday comes around, there's another mountain. Wednesday there's a mountain. Thursday there's a mountain. Friday there's a mountain. There's Saturday's mountain, and then there's Sunday's mountain. And we got, we just go from one mountain to another, waiting for God to move them. And we're kind of miserable when he doesn't, and we're really happy and praising when he does And That's pretty much our spiritual life. And so what happens is, is your prayer just becomes self-centered. When was the last time you prayed because you were working with God on a project? So that's just one arena where this gets messed up. And again, we're asking, what kind of spiritual life do you have if it isn't focused outwardly on other people? In fact, it gets nasty. You become self-centered. When you become self-centered, then you you fight and you quarrel because everything is about you. And you're depressed, and you're this, and you're that, and I know because my spiritual life has done it numerous times. I've been in this. You mock Israel, but I've been like them. And so uh, he says. And if if you're not if you're not looking out and seeing people where their needs are, and using energy and resources and time and effort and intention to do something about that, this is what he says in verse eight. If, But if you do, then, then, he says, your light will break forth like the dawn. Israel, you're so close, you could be a light, and you're not. Israel was, they were lightless. They were doing all this stuff and attracting no one. Your healing would spring up speedily. Your righteousness would go before you. And look, the glory of God would be your rear guard. The glory would surround you and protect you. Remember, you're not producing light. None of us are light producers. It's God's light shining on us that people see. We don't produce light. So there's the light of the dawn. You see, you you become like a light. You know what dawn like is light? You know what dawn light feels like? New day, new hope, new beginning. Anybody need one? Anybody work with anyone who might need one? Anybody Uh, work out with anyone who needs one, anyone sit in class with anyone who needs one, if you're not looking, you won't spot them. But if you do, you can become like a light in the dawn, new beginning, new hope. Or like verse 10 says, look what it says. Your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom is the noonday. Now there's the kind of light that shines in darkness where you know, people are kind of lost and they can't see and they need direction, need truth, need hope, need something that they couldn't find. And you can become that kind of light too. Not just new hope, new beginning, but, the, but actually show the way kind of light. And that's the kind of light that God wanted Israel to have. Show them. They never became that. And here was the key line, and here's the key line, and this is where it's not only gonna hurt if you feel bad, that's one thing. Get over it if you feel bad. Verse 10, this is where it's gonna cost you. If you pour yourself out, you see that line right there? It's out, it's gotta come out. So in other words, if your relationship with God is just sort of up and down, if it's just this way, in other words, when you think of the great commandment, if you only love God with all your heart, but you don't love people too, if you don't care about them, you don't try to reach out to them, then something's going to go really awry here. That's why God put the two commands together. You can't just have this piece and not this piece. If you don't have this piece, it just becomes this weird thing. You never become a light to people. You can't have one without the other and have a, any kind of a semblance of a healthy spiritual life. You just can't have it. So this is going to become uncomfortable and this is where you know of course if you're going to do all those things you're going to have to you're going to have to think about others you're going to have to it's going to cost you you're going to have to your calendar and your schedule are going to get messed up um, you're going to have to actually strategize more and think more about other people than than just focus on getting through your day kind of a thing enter people's pain and aggravation that's kind of what you have to do and so he's saying here without this outlet without this self, uh, without this outlet, you're going to get self-focused and Rosaria Butterfield in her book, very convicting. The gospel comes with a house key. It's about opening your home to your neighbors and that kind of thing. And she's very convicting. And she says not to have that people part. It's violent and it's hostile. And I had to sit back and think on that one for a minute. Is it violent and hostile for me to just have this relationship with God, but not this piece? And at the end of the day, you go, yes, I mean, we, we look around at the world and we see evil people doing evil to each other. We sit around and do nothing for anyone. That's violent and hostile, too, if we don't have that focus. You know, what you're doing is you're just withholding good, and especially the good news. I was very convicted by it. In fact, she goes on to say, your relationship with God, if it's just this way, it's just going to be hypocritical. Because you'll be judgmental. You don't even think about other people. You've, you've excluded them. And to exclude them is, and now you're cowardly. So on this, on, on sort of uh, this rail, you are uh, hypocritical. And on this one, you're just a coward. And then she goes on to say, We have strong words and beliefs. If you have strong words for this culture, and maybe you've thrown them out there on some of these social media things. You have strong words and you have strong beliefs, but you have weak spiritual relationships. She says, that's violent. It's hypocritical and it's cowardly. I'm reading that and I am devastated. At how many places in my life I'm hypocritical and cowardly. Paul has sort of his own way of describing this sort of inward unhealthy spiritual life that has no mission or point to it. You'd be living this spiritual life, but it has no outlet, no point, no focus, no direction. You don't wake up every day on a mission. Then your spiritual life is gonna get weird. And Paul uses this imagery in 1 Corinthians 9. And in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, the the Corinthian church had all kinds of problems. It was a messy church. One of their problems was they were very, very consumed about what they were allowed to do and not allowed to do. It was one of their many problems. And so what happened is they became very self-focused as they argued with each other, well, you're allowed to do that, but you're not allowed to do that. You're allowed to do that, but you're not allowed to do that. Oh, great. And so they're just debating. And the people who said, well, I feel like the Lord is going to let me do that, so I'm going to do it. I don't care what you do and what you do. And then this thing whole started. And Paul comes in in the middle of this conversation because, again, it's just a self-centered spiritual life, just like in Isaiah 58 in Israel. And he says, hey, guys, don't you know how to relate to the world You're looking at people going, am I that? I'm not that. I can do this. I can't do that. And Paul Paul literally uh, writes this. He says, uh, I'm free. We're talking about freedom here, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. Because Paul says, I'm free. And you know what I'm free? I'm free to make myself a slave to everyone. That's what I'm free to do. Don't use your freedom to be self-focused. Use your freedom to be others-focused. And then he says, here's the reason. I make myself a slave to all in order that I might gain more people. So I'm not worried about what I'm allowed to do. I'm willing to either give up something or I'm either willing to not do it or do it for one reason, for a reason, to impact people. That's why he says, in order to gain more people. Then he says in that same text, five times he uses the word gain people. If I'm around people who are really into the law and they're really moral, they're high moral standards, and I'm around them, well, I know how to to relate to that. And he says, I do it because I want to gain them. And he says, I've also been around people who got no morals. I mean, these guys, the walls are down. I mean, it's just in shambles. I know how to be around those people too. And I don't run, and it's not icky, and it's not nasty. I know how to be right in there with them so I might gain them five times. And then at the end of verse 22, a couple of things he says that are profound to the spiritual life. Here's what he says. To the weak, I became weak. This is how he concludes that paragraph. Not only to the Jew or to the law or the guy without the law, but to the weak. And I'm not looking at the weak going, I'm better than you. You can look at the weak and go, I'm better than you. Look what I get to do and you don't get to do. To the weak, I become weak in order to gain the weak. And then he says this, this totalitizing language. is overwhelming. I have become all things to all people so that I might by all means save some. I know why I wake up in the morning. And I'm like, what kind of weird spiritual life are we living if we don't have that edge to us? And then he goes into this great text. Which, Well, look what he says here. I do all these things because of the gospel so that I can be a participant in it. I don't want to just have it. I want to help get it out. It needs to get out. It has to have an outlet. It can't just be me and God. It has to have an outlet. It's got to go somewhere. And that's going to be costly, but I want to participate in it. And then he gives a a little uh, sort of anecdote, illustration that you have heard before, I promise, but you've probably never put it in this context. Here's the verse that sets up the text, I guarantee you've heard before, where Paul says, uh, hey, don't we all compete in a race? Don't we all run in a race and compete for a prize? A runner gets up and he runs because he wants to win a prize. And a boxer gets up because he wants to box and and he's got an opponent that he's got to win. Paul uses that illustration to say, how many of us are waking up every day? Remember how he says it? And this is how he says it because it's it's just really great you ought to hear it. He says, don't you know know that all runners that are in the stadium, they're competing. Only one receives the prize. So you got to Run to win. Run to win. Each competitor has to exercise self-control and everything. I know that it takes a lot of discipline. No athlete can attempt to win anything without discipline. That's what Paul's saying. Uh, they do, most athletes do it just to receive a, you know, a, a perishable crown, a prize. But we have an imperishable one. So he says, and this is a great line. This is here, it's really hitting me right now. He says, so I do not run uncertainly. There's no way I'm waking up every day and starting off with that starter's pistol in my ear and thinking it's all about me and and pleasing God and manipulation and getting over my mountain. I want to participate in the gospel. I don't want to just possess it. I want to participate in it. That's the spiritual life. So Paul says, when I hear that starter pistol, I got a reason for getting up every day, driving to work, drinking coffee, doing my job, going to school, whatever it is I'm doing. I'm not just here to do a job. I live in the world with a different thing. Whether whether it's a club sports my kids are in, I'm not just on a club team. I'm not just running to meander down through the field. Paul says, in the boxers, and he goes, I definitely don't want a shadow box, he says. You know, only hitting the air. No, I I want the bell to go off, and I want the first round to start. That's what Paul is saying. Otherwise, he says, I'm preaching to others, and I'm disqualified myself. I got nothing to say. That's what he's saying. That hurts. That's painful. You're like, how is it that that's supposed to be so much of the aim of my life, and I don't even have plans to do it? In fact, I have come up with very good spiritual reasons why I shouldn't ever open my mouth about anything. You got to sit back and go, what am I doing So Paul says, this is how he closed the whole section, because it's in chapter 10 where it closes. He says, I don't seek my own benefit. This is so convicting. But the benefit of others, so that they may may have what I have, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Here was God's mission for Israel that they never really got arise shine for your light is coming the glory of the lord has risen upon you for behold darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples but the lord will arise upon you listen when god's going to shine a light he's going to shine a light through you and he's not he's not going to just he's going to shine a light through you and his glory will be seen upon you see that's the light it's not We need to know what does it mean for God's glory to come through us. That's what the rest of the series is about. Nations shall come to your life. There'll be people attracted to the brightness of the hope and the truth that you bear. Is that your life? Is that my life? So, you know, this summer, I'm in, uh, you know... We're in Florida, it's always shark week when we're there. So, I mean, I'm always apprehensive about being, you know, a foot and a half in the water. Very, very cautious. And uh, I was reading something this summer. If you, if you saw the movie Jaws, you know the most iconic uh, movie monologue is the one where the captain is on the boat and they're comparing scars and uh, he says, he, he, he gets into that scary voice and face. And he starts telling literally the, tem- the story of the USS Indianapolis when it went down. And in the, in the testimony, he's, he was one of the men that went down with that ship. So at the end of July uh, 1945, the USS Indianapolis has just left San Francisco with the atomic bomb on it. They take it all the way to the Tinian Island, the Marianas, those islands in there, the Philippine Sea. So they get it there. And, on there, and then they leave Tinian and head to Guam, and so they're out in the Philippine Sea. And Japanese torpedo. With days left in the war, the war's going to end here the first week of August, But a Japanese submarine spots the USS Indianapolis and with two torpedo shots, sinks it. The explosion killed roughly 300 men. 1,200 were aboard. Worst U.S. naval catastrophe in you know Navy, military and Navy history. Uh, these men are, you know, 300 of them are dead there. 900 of them are in the water. They're all covered in black oil. Many of them are burnt. Uh, skin falling off of the devastated. Can't recognize anyone because either they're injured so badly or they're in oil, literally covered and caked in the oil from the ship. And so you had to be up on a person and literally talking to them for a while before you even knew who anyone was. The whites of their eyes is all you could see for most of the five days. And, of course, they watch as this big ship tips up and comes straight, goes straight down. And then there's just mayhem in the water. You're 300 miles from land. You are in the deepest, darkest sea, the nightmare of most of us. And the, the, the seas and the winds, and then there are about four or five little deals, um, um, rafts, some of them, some men. But by the time they're all, they're in six or seven different groups, 900 of them, only 316 survive. By now, they're miles, somewhat, almost as 70 miles away from where the ship went down, and they're all separated. And the high swells keep them from seeing each other anyway. And I couldn't wait to get to that part in the book because that's what I read this summer. I've always wanted to read it, and two ladies have come out with a new book on it. And it's so fascinating. Well, I got to the middle section where this thing is happening, and uh, they're describing the story. And I, I, I didn't understand so much about what was going on and what happened to those men. But of course sharks came. You'd be with a buddy and sharks come. They said thousands of sharks were down there by the time uh, the five days were up. Nobody realized they were there. Five days in that water, no food, no rations. They started to go nuts. The salt water inside of them. They started going crazy. They started, it, it wasn't just sharks that were taking them from each other. You'd body parts all over the land over the five days, but they didn't have. Uh, but they because they were going crazy, they were killing each other, not realizing what they were doing, and killing themselves because they didn't know what they were doing. They were going nuts, and so all this is happening, and you're reading it. 107 eyewitnesses telling what life was like in the water for five days, and nobody found. Nobody knew they were there. It happened to be for a little plane that just happened to be making a little practice run that came out and happened to see an oil slick, followed it, found the first little group of guys. It was 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon, five days later. It's like August 3rd, 1945. This ship's calling it in now. Ships are going to be coming from everywhere. But it's 4.30 in the afternoon. It's about to get dark. Winds are picking up. It's very cold. And it's a mess out there. This plane knows this thing's about to go down. The men are some of the groups of men can see it. Other planes start to come and all they can do is fly around. One of them decides to land, knowing it'll never take off again, just to get at least 50 guys into something dry. So it does. It never takes off again. And he's radioing everybody, talking to the ships. And the USS Doyle is, is going to be the first ship there, but he's not going to get there till midnight. And now the thing is, how are the rest of these 250 guys going last to this last this horrible night? And if you're on the USS Doyle and you're heading toward those guys, listen to this boilers are churning hot USS Doyle sliced through the sea with the urgency of a bullet over the radio Clader had, ha- had heard that, that uh, Marks collected more than 50 men and also a- about the second Dumbo there's a Dumbo that's what they called those planes that landed in the water and those guys got on this meant there were at least 100 men still in the water and there was more than that it's all they knew how many would be lost to the cold or sharks before the sh- first ship got there so at 10:42 p.m., Claytors issued an order that no man aboard had ever heard before. Turn on the searchlight and point it at the sky. Claytors' officers and sailors were stunned. At night, the crew of a warship made a religion keeping it dark, skulking around under dim red lights, even hiding the orange glimmer of their cigarettes. Some on the bridge were aware of Mark's warning about possible submarines in the area. Allowing any light to escape the ship was like painting her with a bullseye for the enemy. Still, they understood. Doyle was more than an hour away from the survivors, and Clater wanted the men in the water to see the light, dig deep, and hang on just a little longer. A sailor complied with the skipper's order and the ship's 24-inch searchlight streamed skyward, piercing the night with a perfect tower of brilliant white. Standing topside, Charles Doyle gazed up at the unprecedented beacon, beacon and hair stood up on the back of his neck. Like the rest of the crew, he trusted his captain. He also knew that for the first time in his Navy service, his ship had just become the brightest target in the Pacific. And when Marks, the one who was in the plane with those men, saw Doyle's light on the southern horizon, he decided he had never seen a finer example of American courage. Clater knew there might be some enemy subs out there. Yet Doyle, captain, had resolutely trained his searchlight at the sky. The reaction of the, on the plane was electrifying. Look, Marks said to the men crying, who were crying for water and clinging to life. That light they saw was a destroyer on its way. There was water aboard, doctors, rescue coming soon. As he watched, joy and relief washed over their faces. They settled back against the bulkheads, engaged upon that lovely light, now certain of their salvation. Doyle's light had a similar effect on the men in the water. One group had dwindled from 130 to 35, and they had almost given up hope. When they saw the luminous tower, he realized for the first time he was going to make it. Another group of men saw it, and around him, it says, fresh fire surged in the men, a sudden burning will to live. In another group, the darkness came, erasing it from the sky, and with it hope. Doyle's searchlight appeared, and Morgan felt chills race up his spine. It was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. I remember reading that and thinking about this text and thinking about why God Long so much for us to be a light to the people in the world who are hurting all of the ones that were listed in Isaiah. The people around us every single day. We could be that light that's either a, it shines to give new hope a new beginning or it just shines to show the way. But there's just no way we can keep hiding that light. Even At risk to ourselves, that light must be shown. Today, we're launching a full-out all campaign in this fall to help every single person who knows that deep inside them but has all kinds of hurdles to get over, to get there. We want to help you get to where you're more comfortable and capable of interacting with people in the world and culture that we live with today and bringing Christ to them in unique ways. We've, our staff, very, very, put together a very, very quality guide. It's not a study guide. It's important to say that because it's not about study. It's about here's how you do it. It's just about how. It's practical stuff and prayer stuff. Every small group's going to be going through it. All the studies are going to be going through it. I'm encouraging every single one of you to go out into the foyer right now and get one. We're not making any money on it, it's not a money thing. We're losing money on them. We want it in everyone's hands. And we'd love for you to get in a group because here's one of the first things I'll tell you. You'll never get out of that mud by yourself. You need someone to help you out of that mud. And the small groups are all being trained. All these leaders are being trained in order to help people walk through this. No games, no what-ifs, no studying the passages, and that's it. What am I going to do this week to shine that light a little bit brighter? And Dave's going to come up right now, and he's going to tell you how to do that. Uh, Let me pray real fast. Father, every single person in this room probably at some point in this talk has felt bad. Perhaps there's someone in this room who needs that light. I pray, Father, they would see Christ in us. I also pray, Lord, that you'll help every single one of us overcome the hurdles so that we can be who you called us to be. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.